Gresham College presents Samuel Taylor Coleridge, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Poetic Technique by Professor Belinda Jack. Um, we've been listening, of course, to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Um, and the reason why I thought that might set the scene is because Beethoven and Coleridge had very similar ideas about what art was about. And they both felt it was much less about representing the world out there um, in all its myriad forms and much more about the engagement of the human consciousness with what's out there. It's about that interconnectedness. Um, And both Beethoven's Ninth and Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner were considered by many of their contemporaries to be works of something close to madness. So they share that too. Um, His close friend and collaborator, William Wordsworth, um, They were both young men, both aspiring poets. Um, In a letter to Joseph Cottle, one of their publishers in 1799, wrote in relation to the lyrical ballads, um, and here are the contents of the lyrical ballads, and you'll see the rhyme of the ancient mariner is at the top. So he wrote to Cottle, and he said this, From what I can gather, it seems that the ancient mariner has upon the whole been an injury to the volume. I mean that the old words and the strangeness of it have deterred readers from going on. If the volume should come to a second edition, I would put in its place some little things which would be more likely to suit the common taste. So that was Wordsworth's view, Um, and of course the rhyme has has lasted as as one of the great poems in the English language. And this volume, um, The Lyrical Ballads, is generally regarded as the beginning, as the publication that marks the beginning of the English Romantic movement in literature. Now, Coleridge is also famous for his lifelong addiction to laudanum, um, which is a tincture of opium, and a very potent... Um, an addictive narcotic. And the relationship between his wild, hallucinatory um, imagination um, and his drug-taking has been much discussed. Well, in a letter to the same Joseph Cottle, um, I was just going to show you an advertisement just to show how readily available it was, but it was clearly marked as poison. Um, Coleridge admitted <coughs> Cottle knew um, about his drug-taking, and he wrote to him in 1814, saying, I was seduced into the accursed habit ignorantly. I had been almost bedridden for many months with swelling in my knees. In a medical journal, I happily met with an account of a cure performed in a similar case by rubbing it of laudanum, at the same time taking the dose internally. It acted like a charm, like a miracle. At length, the unusual stimulus subsided. The complaint returned. The supposed remedy was recurred to. But I cannot go through the dreary history. Suffice to say that effects were produced which acted on me by terror and cowardice of pain and sudden death. Now, of course, the most popular story that connects Coleridge um, with his laudanum habit um, was what he wrote himself in the preface to the poem Kublai Khan. (coughs) 
Coleridge described having fallen into an opium-induced sleep, and he writes for himself in the third person. He says, The author continued for about three hours in a profound sleep, at least of the external senses, during which time he has the most vivid confidence that he could not have composed less than from two or three hundred lines. On waking, he appeared to himself to have a distinct recollection of the whole, and taking up his pen and paper, instantly and eagerly wrote the lines that are here preserved. That's to say, the poem Kublai Khan. At this moment, he was unfortunately called out by a person on business from Porlock, and detained by him above an hour. And on his return to his room, found, to his no small surprise and mortification, that though he still retained some vague and dim recollection of the general purport of the vision, yet, with the exception of some eight or ten scattered lines and images, all the rest had passed away, like the images on the surface of a stream into which a stone has been cast, but alas, without the restoration of the latter. In other words, you see the reflection in the water, the image in the water, you throw the stone in and it dissipates. But of course, in the stream, the image returns. But in Coleridge's case, the lines didn't return to him. Now, Coleridge seems to have used his laudanum taking, his opium addiction, as, as, as something of a kind of publicity stunt, um, and many of Coleridge's biographers um, point out that for many of his readers, there was something sort of extra exciting about reading poetry that was in some way induced by opium. Um, but it's very much contested whether or not um, the opium taking had anything much to do with his poetry. And I think the general view is that the more addicted he became, the worse his poetry became. Um, Coleridge defined poetry not in hallucinatory, wild, uncontrolled ways, um, but as originating in an act of supreme attentiveness, attentiveness to the world to produce that sense of extraordinary connectedness that I mentioned at the beginning. And he wrote this definition of poetry in a letter of July 1802. A great poet must have the ear of a wild Arab listening in the silent desert the eye of a North American Indian tracing the footsteps of an enemy upon the leaves that strew the forest, the touch of a blind man feeling the face of a darling child. For Coleridge, it's sensory experience which connects us to the world, and it's the myriad of mysterious ways in which these stimuli engage with the human consciousness that interest Coleridge. Now, the rhyme... Um, began with a dream, um, but not Coleridge's. Um, a neighbour told of a dream to Wordsworth, and Wordsworth recounted the dream to Coleridge. And initially, the two men were going to co-write a poem based on the story of the ancient mariner. Um, and they decided <coughs> that it, they thought it had considerable commercial um, possibilities. But Coleridge got stuck into the poem, um, and in the end, it became entirely... Coleridge's poem. And J.C.C. Mays, who is one of Coleridge's brilliant editors, his, his edition of Coleridge's poetry is absolutely superb. Um, there are references to almost anything that might mystify you um, in Coleridge's text. 
And he writes that the rhyme, and I quote, became a mirror in which Coleridge came to see his fate as endlessly reflected. I think May is so absorbed in Coleridge's um, linguistic diction um, that his own critical writings have a kind of Coleridgean ring to them. Became a mirror in which Coleridge came to see his fate as endlessly reflected. It wasn't actually until after writing The Ancient Mariner that Coleridge first went to sea on a ship bound for Hamburg. And in a letter, he revealed that extraordinary attentiveness to his surroundings about which he writes so compellingly. Um, In a letter, he wrote, About four o'clock, I saw a wild duck swimming on the waves, a single solitary duck. You cannot conceive how interesting a thing it looked in that round, objectless desert of waters. It's as though his vision um, that emerged, the vision that emerges in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner is then a lens through which he sees the world. Um, and I think one thing that literary critics and literary historians have given too little attention, we all know that writers draw on their experience, but I think there's another very interesting area that could be explored much further than it has so far, and that's the degree to which having written something the writer's experience of the world changes. Um, And it seems very much as though writing The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which was a poem which I'll come on to explain, he continued to work on and revise for over 30 years. Um, It did become very much one of the lenses through which he he saw the world and his his own life within the world. So for those of you who don't know the poem, um, how can it be summarised? This isn't really something I like to do, but um, in case there are people here who haven't read the poem, I just want to give you a rough idea. Um, It's a very long poem in seven parts, so there's no hope of listening to a recording. So at the beginning, the mariner, the ancient mariner, um, stops a wedding guest and insists on telling him his story. He describes how his ship sailed south to the equator, and then we hear that the wedding guest can hear the music um, of the wedding, and he tries to leave. Um, but the mariner insists that he must listen, and quite soon the wedding guest is, is beguiled. And the mariner talks about the storm um, hitting in the ship and driving them south, and then they become stuck in ice. An albatross appears and befriends the crew, and the crew feed it. Um, a south wind blows up, and takes them northward. And then, for no apparent reason, the mariner kills the albatross. At first, the crew condemn the mariner for killing the albatross, but when the fog dissipates, they commend him. So there's some sense in which the albatross having been killed is going to bring them bad luck, so they condemn him, but then when it seems that this may have brought good luck, they commend him. And they sail north and are becalmed at the equator. And here they suffer from agonising thirst. Slimy things are described on the water and the lights are described as, and I quote, burnt green and blue and white. And a spirit is following them nine fathoms below the ship and apparently propelling them. And at this point, the seamen hang the dead albatross around the mariner's neck. In part three, he sees a ship far off 
and thinks that they will be rescued and the crew begins to celebrate. Um, but then they despair because they realise that there's no wind and they can't see how they can sail without it. Now the ship turns out to be a skeleton ship and there are only two figures on it. One is a figure of a woman, life in death, and a mate, death, for crew. And they throw dice for the crew and she wins. The sun sets, the skeleton ship leaves, and the crew dies, one by one. And their souls fly out and we're told to bliss or woe, perhaps heaven or hell. And now in part four, um, the wedding guest interjects and says that he fears that the marin is actually a ghost and not a real man at all. But the mariner assures him that he did not die. Back on the ship, the mariner is alone and desperately tries to pray, but he's unsuccessful. And for seven days, he looks at the dead men and, and I quote, yet I cannot die. He sees the water snakes lit up by the moon and blesses them. And suddenly he's able to pray and the albatross falls from his neck. In part five, he sleeps and when he wakes, it's raining and a storm blows up and the dead seamen arise from the decks and they start to man the ship once more. And I quote, it had been strange even in a dream to have seen those dead men rise, those dead men rise. Again, the wedding guest listening to this story is afraid, but he's reassured by the marin that it's not the souls of the dead men that have reanimated them, but what's described as a troop of spirits blessed. They sing around the mast and continue to sail on, move from the depths beneath. The spirit from the snow and ice moves them to the equator again, where the ship stands still once again. It moves back and forth, but then suddenly makes a bound, and the mariner falls into a swoon. And he hears two voices in his sleep, telling of his crime and his trials. And in part six, these two voices talk back and forth, and the ship is driven faster and faster. The mariner wakes, and the ship now sails slowly, and the crew is still up, and their eyes curse him. Suddenly some spell is broken and a sweet wind blows on him and him alone and he sees his native land. The spirits leave the dead bodies and each appears in its own form full of light. They stand as signals to the land but make no sound. A boat is heard coming towards him. The pilot, his boy and the hermit are all in the boat. He hopes that the hermit will shrieve his soul, that is, provide atonement and wash away the blood of the albatross. And in part seven, the final part, the hermit who lives in the woods loves to talk to mariners from faraway lands, we're told. And the lights of the signal have disappeared, and the boat appears warped, and the sails are like skeletons. And as they approach land, a rumble is heard under the water, and the ship splits and sinks. The mariner is dragged aboard the boat. That's the pilot and his son and the hermit. When he moves his lips, they scream, and the pilot faints, and the mariner then takes the oars. And when they reach the land, he implores the hermit to atone him. The mariner is overcome by some kind of fit, which forces him to tell his tale. 
And since then, he's had to travel from land to land telling his tale. He has powers of speech and knows the men to whom he should tell his tale. The sounds of merriment come from the wedding party within, and the mariner tells how sweet it is for him to have company after being alone on the sea, and tells the wedding guest to love things all great and small. And the wedding guest leaves, and the final lines are, a sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn. Now, the rhyme's unique in the corpus of Coleridge's poems um, in having been revised and changed um, so many times. It was composed between 1797 and March 1798 and revised between 1800 and 1834. So for 37 years of his life, um, he was making adjustments and changes. But even with all this working and reworking, he's not, <clears throat> as James Fenton writes in the introduction to his um, very wonderful edition of the 1798 version, Fenton writes, he's not a perfect poet in the way that, say, George, George Herbert is a perfect poet. That is to say, with Herbert, you feel that the forms and the language is, uh, are perfectly congruent with the purposes of the poet. Herbert's poems, he goes on to write, and I quote, are not problem-strewn, implying, of course, that Coleridge's are. And then he's explicit, Coleridge's poems bring with them all kinds of fascinating doubts. Now, in a conversation with Hazlitt, another writer, painter, critic, um, philosopher, uh, contemporary of Coleridge's, um, Coleridge wrote, the definite, the fixed, is death. The principle of life is the indefinite, the growing, the moving, the continuous. Um, and that quotation, I think, shows just how much it mattered to Coleridge not to draw a, a line under the rhyme, but to go on working with it in this constant process. <clears throat> and I think it's our own fluid, um, uncertain response to the poem that accounts for much of its mesmerising power, just as the wedding guest waylaid by the ancient mariner um, is mesmerised by the old man's story, so are we as, as readers of the poem. Now, the rhyme is written in the ballad form. Um, this was a decision that Wordsworth and Coleridge made really for commercial reasons. Um, ballads were very popular. Um, and here's a lucid description of that form, the ballad form. The distinctive quality that popular ballads share is spareness. In other words, they're pared down. They're out to deal only with the culminating incident or climax of a plot. And in a sense, the killing of the albatross is really the whole poem in some sense. To describe that event with intense compression, to put the burden of narration on allusive monologue or dialogue, and to avoid editorial comment. And that's going to matter a little bit later, to avoid editorial comment. This concentration upon the bare essential is precisely the quality that the fallible human memory is likely not only to preserve, but also to enhance, for the effort of remembering causes a sloughing off of what is not, is not strictly relevant. So this idea that the memory only retains a sort of crisp, spare sense of things, and the ballad conveys that same straightforwardness. Some of the best ballads 
have thus been refined in their transmission through people's minds, gaining rather than losing artistic stature as they're told and retold or sung and retold. The fact that ballads were originally songs is important to their development. The simplicity of the tunes to which they were sung not only influenced the distinctive verse form, normally a quatrain with four stresses per line, but also encouraged a corresponding simplicity in the narrative itself and made individualising flourishes impossible. So these ballads that were, so- were sung were passed on and in that passing on changed along the way and never had that individualising stamp, um, that sort of single author perhaps stamp. Um, and maybe not, not only is the rhyme in the ballad form um, and therefore shows some of these features, but the fact that Coleridge wrote it and rewrote it is a little bit like the transmission of a ballad being written and rewritten by different people. Now, the reception of the first edition of the rhyme um, was mixed, to say the least. Um, the writer-poet Charles, Charles Lamb remarked that, and I quote, the rhyme of the ancient mariner is a poem fertile in unmeaning miracles. The rhyme of the ancient mariner is a poem fertile in unmeaning miracles. But he also refers to, and I quote, 50 passages as miraculous as the miracles they celebrate. Charles Burney, who was a classical scholar, offered um, the following um, famous remarks, um, and I quote, though it seems a rhapsody of unintelligible wildness and incoherence, there are in it poetical touches of an exquisite kind. And Robert Southey wrote... Many of the stanzas are laboriously beautiful, but in connection, they are absurd or unintelligible, specifically five stanzas early in part five. So in connection, they are absurd. In other words, you can't make sense of the relation of one part to another. Now, 19 years after its first appearance in 1817, Coleridge published a new edition, complete with a prose gloss in the left margins. Now, why did Coleridge produce this strange edition? And how should we read the poem in the light of their edition? Coleridge claimed that a test of poetry was, and I quote, the untranslatableness into words of the same language without injury to the meaning. In other words, his definition of great poetry is that you can't paraphrase it. You can't, in the same language produce a version that explains the poem that's anywhere near the poem and therefore the great poem you can't you can't translate um, into a gloss but here is Coleridge deciding in 1817 that he's going to publish his poem again but provide little prose glosses down the left-hand side elsewhere um, in, in the, but it's published in the Biographica Literaria, which is a sort of compilation of a lot of his essays on literature. He wrote of Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis that I mentioned in my last lecture. Um, and I quote, You seem to be told nothing but to see and hear everything. There is a perpetual activity of attention required on the part of the reader. We're surely providing glosses, surely providing little sort of notes in the left-hand margin about what the poem's talking about, is telling us how to read the poem. It's doing precisely what Coleridge says a great poem shouldn't do. And in telling us how to read the poem, we no longer have to make that effort of attentiveness to the poem, 
which Coleridge thought were so important. So let's just look at a couple of um, examples of this. So this is stanza 11 in part one. And now the storm blast came and he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his uh, taking wings and chased us south along. Well, there are a good many poetic techniques at work here. Storm obviously being personified as a winged creature, perhaps foreshadowing the importance of the albatross, the bird at the centre of the poem. And the force of the wind is suggested by the engendrement, enjambment, um, never quite sure how to pronounce that in English, um, which pushes us from the end of the first line and, and on to the second. And he was tyrannous and strong, so that the sense of the force of, of the storm is suggested by that that enjambment. The, and, and similarly, there are these steady I ams, first unstressed, second stressed, de-dum, de-dum, de-dum. So that's the, the poetry, very briefly. So how do we read the gloss? So in the left-hand column, beside this stanza, we read the ship driven by a storm towards the South Pole, toward the South Pole. There isn't even a verb in it. Um, nothing's been added Nothing's been explained that we surely were, well, I mean, we're aware of the storm. Um, what, how does this help? Why did Coleridge think it was worth um, producing this? Um, let's take another um, rather different example. This is six stanzas from the end of the poem. The moving moon went up the sky and nowhere did abide. Softly she was going up and a star or two beside. So we've got alliteration here, the moving moon, the repetition of that M sound, and the assonance of the ooh, ooh, moving moon. And it suggests a kind of wonderful order, a kind of celestial harmony. And the moon, again, is personified softly. She was going up. And she's accompanied by a star or two. It's a serene scene, you might say, you know, all is, all is well in the heavens. So what do we make of the gloss? So here we have the obverse of the previous example where we had the stanza and a very short prose description. Um, here we have a stanza and then a prose description. There's an awful lot longer and more elaborate than the, than the poetry. In his loneliness and fixedness, he yearneth towards the journeying moon, and the stars that still sojourn, yet still move onward. And everywhere the blue sky belongs to them, and is their appointed rest, and their native country, and their own natural homes, which they enter unannounced as lords that are certainly unexpected, and yet there is silent joy at their arrival. Well, here we have the verse and the prose version um, just to throw into relief this extraordinary imbalance. In the verse, no one's present, although the sight of the night sky is obviously made sense of by an implied human consciousness witnessing a distant celestial scene, of which he's obviously not part. But the prose gloss seems to add an awful lot that's not there, and everything is made very explicit. So what are we to make of these glosses? Are they actually a parody? Is he poking fun at his readers who found the verse unintelligible and therefore wrote accounts of what they thought the story was? Um, 
Or could it be that the glosses draw our attention to the endlessly receding exegetical process? I mean by that that you have the poem, then you have what purports to be an explanation of what's going on in the poem. Um, And then, of course, we interpret both the poem and the interpretation of the poem. And then our interpretation could then be interpreted by somebody else. I mean, there's a sense in which you can go on interpreting. I mean, when do you get to a sort of end point where you can stick? Um, And is that what Coleridge um, is drawing our attention to? Or is it that we're made very keenly aware of how differently words work in different forms, how differently the words in the prose gloss as opposed to the words in this dense, complex, highly poetic language work? Um, Coleridge was also very interested in theology, and he was very aware of the Christian exegetical tradition. The whole business of biblical scholarship is one of interpretation. And Jerome McGann, um, in a very interesting article entitled The Meaning of the Ancient Mariner, points out that the scriptures were not sort of direct and unmediated um, texts, but, and I quote, evolved and continuously, uh, evolved and continuously, sorry, I've got a typo here, um, were a continuously evolving set of records, which include the church's later glosses, and interpretations of the earlier documents. So with the scriptures, you have an interpretation that then becomes part of the biblical tradition, and then there are further interpretations and so on. And that was something that Coleridge would certainly have been aware of. And of course, that bears resemblance with the ballad form and the way it was handed down from singer to singer and changed and adapted. Now, not surprisingly... Um, of all Coleridge's poems, the rhyme has been subject to the most lively interpretive wars. And at one end of the spectrum are those that claim that it's the imagery of the poem, it's the the wonderful, vivid, spectacular, hallucinatory, nightmarish quality of the figurative language that matters. But by the time Coleridge was writing the rhyme... Um, he was toying with all kinds of theological and political and philosophical ideas. Um, And and as his friend, the poet De Quincey, um, claimed, um, and I quote, logic the most severe was as inalienable from his modes of thinking as grammar from his language. In other words, he thought very, very logically and he wrote very, very clearly. He knew the grammar of language And he knew that when you set about thinking about a problem, logic is key. And therefore, one can't help thinking that there's going to be more to the poem than simply this hallucinatory, wonderful imagery. We also know that Coleridge draws on a huge number of other authors in the rhyme. Um, Mays, the wonderful editor um, of Coleridge that I mentioned earlier, Um, He's detected Aeschylus, Chaucer, Dante, Brian Edwards, Falconer, Gower, Herodotus, Captain James, and then he says, and I quote, and so on through the alphabet to Virgil and Gilbert White. Um, And the conscious um, use of books of travel, um, I think the reason why he can capture what it's like to be in in a ship on the ocean, never himself having been on a ship, um, is down to these wonderful travel books that were so popular. 
Um, so there are debts of every kind to so many writers. Um, and again, this makes you think that there's something much, much more deliberate about what Coleridge is doing than having um, had sort of extraordinary experiences as a function of opium smoking, which has turned into this sort of wonderful... Um, complex set of stanzas full of um, mind-blowing imagery. Um, it's not just a ballad rich in zany imagery. Um, Coleridge insisted that it had a moral, and he thought that the moral was too obvious. And in this regard, Sir Leslie Stephen, who's the father of Virginia Woolf, um, he made a, an acerbic comment about its moral, um, which again is legendary. Uh, he wrote, The moral which would apparently be that people who sympathise with a man who shoots an albatross will die in prolonged torture of thirst, is open to objection. Um, there are further problems. I mean, how reliable is the mariner as narrator? How much is, of what he's describing was actually to do with being delirious? Um, did the boat really travel all that way from south, the South Seas to the northern port? Um, some critics have just dodged the whole question and, and assert that Coleridge's purpose is to assert the unintelligibility of the universe. But again, I mean, we know that in 1797, Coleridge was thinking through all sorts of complex and difficult intellectual problems. He was also preaching as a Unitarian. So again, I think to, to write the poem off as simply... Um, communicating the unintelligibility of the universe isn't satisfactory. Um, <clears throat> a Christian interpretation um, has been popular since the Victorian period, um, and this is really in relation to these verses. Um, so this is, this is just before he's able to pray. Beyond the shadow of the ship, I watched the water snakes... They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire, blue, glossy green and velvet black. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. O oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them, unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free, the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. Um, and it's these lines um, which have been somewhat parodied in their interpretation. Um, you know, just by seeing sea snakes, he's suddenly able to pray and being able to pray, the albatross falls off his neck and um, everything's going to be all right. Um, Robert Penn Warren's critique, um, I think, has a very privileged status. And in his view, the shooting of the albatross symbolises the fall, um, original sin. And the fall has the qualities important here. It's a condition of will, as Coleridge, is set, as Coleridge says, out of time. It is the result of no single human motive. And Auden proposes a similar hypothesis. The albatross, he writes, and I quote, is related to the dove of the Holy Spirit and through him to the innocent victim, Christ. 
Another possible interpretation is that the albatross is actually the poet, and once the albatross has been slain, the poet is no longer um, able to create. And in fact, Charles Baudelaire, uh, the French poet, wrote a, a sonnet about an albatross in which he likens the albatross explicitly um, to the poet. Um, R.L. Brett comments, and I quote, The mariner rebels against the divine order and is punished by the terrible separation from God which follows upon his deed. And he later concludes, The events of the poem show a pattern of what might be called orthodox religious experience, culminating in the lines of the final stanza, He prayeth best who loveth best, all things both great and small, for the dear God who loveth us he made and loveth all. And just as a footnote, I'd just like to say, if this, these lines strike one as quite cliched, um, or as the French theorist Jacques Derrida would say, have suffered wear and tear, <laughs> it may be because Coleridge's lines inspired the well-known hymn All Things Bright and Beautiful, published in 1848 in Mrs. Cecil Alexander's Hymns for Little Children. And there it is, I'm sure you know it. Of course, having both the prose and the verse versions, um, as I mentioned earlier, makes us keenly aware of just how differently prose and poetry function. And the ballad is replete with technical or rhetorical poetical techniques. Um, I just want to whiz through some of these. Um, there's an enormous amount of internal rhyme. Obviously, there's end rhyme, you know, where you have the rhyme at the end of the line, um, but there's also a lot of internal rhymes. So, hold off and hand me greybeard loon. This is the, the wedding guest saying, let go of me. Um, Eftsoons his hand drop he. So, loon and Eftsoon um, obviously rhyme. The ship drove fast, loud roared the blast, and through the drifts, the snowy clifts, in mist or cloud, on mast or shroud, why looks thou so with my cross bow, the fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, and so on and so on. So you've got end rhyme, but you've got lots of other rhyme connecting different parts of the poem, connecting different words together in a way that prose doesn't, by and large. There's also um, interesting inversion um, in the poem. So in lines 141 to 142, we have, instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. Um, instead of was hung about my neck. And that makes a particular effect. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. The emphasis is on the hanging of it, the hung. Um, so the verb has been delayed there, and that holds our attention. There passed a weary time... Well, normally we'd say a weary time passed. Um, but again, there passed a weary time. By delaying time, we get some sense of the slowness of the time. The naked hulk alongside came. Um, again, the verb adds the drama of this extraordinary skeleton ship coming alongside. The naked hulk alongside came. The effects can add drama, um, delaying a main verb or slowing the line down to have emphasis, as in the weary time. Then enjambment, um, where one line runs onto the next, um, is another technique that he uses very often. And now the storm blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. 
um, and through the drifts the snowy cliffs did send a dismal sheen. Again, it speeds up our, our um, understanding of the poem. Um, instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. So there you've got internal rhymes um, and jambments, all sorts of things going on at once. There passed a weary time, each throat was parched and glazed each eye. Again, the enjambment there emphasises this weary time which goes on into the final line. There are all sorts of figures of speech. Um, we've got alliteration. You've got the bees of the by and the beard and the grey and the glittering. Um, line 15, and listens like a three-year child. Um, again, it gives it a quite a musical sense. Um, so... I don't want to labour this. Um, um, here we have an aphora repetition. He holds him with his skinny hand. He holds him with his glistening eye. Below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top, um, and so on. Again, a, a huge amount of repetition. Then there's irony, and not very much irony, but of course the central irony is... Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Then we come on to metaphor. The wedding guest, he beat his breast. Well, it's a figure of speech. He wasn't literally beating his breast. Each turned his face with a ghastly pang and cursed me with his eye. So likening the appearance of the eye to a curse. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. So the wake um, left by the sea snakes is, is compared to fire. Um, there's onomatopoeia, where the sound of the word mimics the sound. It cracked and growled and roared and howled um, in line 61. Um, there's personification, as we've already seen. The sun came up upon the left. Out of the sea came he... And he shone bright and on the right went down into the sea, comparing the sun to a person. Um, now, I think there are two particular rhetorical tropes um, in the rhyme that are key to, to the effect it has on us, on, on why we engage as we engage with it. And that's simile and synecdoche. So simile is obviously where you liken one thing to another. Um, so we'll just... So here the wedding guest stood still and listens like, so you're comparing him to a three-year child, and that's suggesting the extraordinary attentiveness of a child listening to a story. Um, the bride is described as res red as a rose is she, um, likening the bride to a rose, and I'll come back to this particular simile in a moment. Um, it cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swound, likening the sound of the ice breaking to the kind of noises you might hear in a swoon, in a faint. Um, every soul it passed me by like the whiz of my crossbow. So the passing of, the, of a soul is likened to the sound of a, an arrow shooting past the ear. Um, the sky and the sea and the sea and the sky lay like a load on my weary eye, likening the sky and sea to a weight on his eyelids. Um, and so on. Um, 
Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath, nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. So likening the motionless ship to the still image of a painted ship on, on a canvas. And then just briefly, synecdoche, which is where a part is made to represent a whole. So the western wave was all aflame. The wave is actually the sea. It's, it's the sea that's aflame because the sun's setting, and so obviously the light on the water um, makes it look fiery. But it's, it's the sea. It's not just the wave. Um, but synecdoche is this way of referring to a part. Um, now, in a minute, I want to say a little bit about it as a as a trope, um, I fear thee and thy glittering eye. This is also Synecdoche, representing his soul, which longs to be released from the living death that he's experiencing on the ship amongst all the dead crew. Um, so I'd like just to say a little bit more about Synecdoche. Um, in an article on the trope in George Meredith's tragicomic novel, The Egoist of 1879, um, Daniel Smurlock uh, makes a key point um, about how synecdoche works. And he says this, the fact that synecdoche is a figure that is a falsification in some sense and that it is substitutive implies the existence of some interpretive technique that permits the apprehender of the synecdoche to return to the whole of which he has been given a part. If synecdoche is a valid, a truth-telling technique and it is governed by a whole that nevertheless disappears entirely in the figurative substitution, then an interpretive act is required to return to the whole that renders the part significant. Prior to interpretation, the synecdoche merely stands for the whole. The interpreter must make it mean the whole. Now, I think that's perhaps unnecessarily complicated. Um, the point is that the wave is part of the whole, the wave is part of the sea, and it's we as readers who have to make sense of that part as being the whole. Um, so it's, 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 it's a fragment, and we have to turn that fragment into the whole. Um, and that is an interpretive act. Now, this, of course, is where the gloss might come in. You might think, OK, well, if there are these kind of rhetorical tropes being used, like the wave, then surely if he's provided us with notes in prose down the left-hand side of the poem... He's going to help with some of this and tell us that the Western wave actually means the sea. So let's see what he gives us for the Western wave. Um, oh, no, sorry, he doesn't actually. <laughs> for, for the Western wave, there is absolutely no gloss in the left-hand column at all. So we're none the wiser. Um, he doesn't help. What about um, a wicked whisper cape? Nope, that's not it either. Um, what about the second, um, I fear thee and thy glittering eye? Well, we do get an explanation, and it is as follows. But the ancient mariner assureth him of his bodily life and proceedeth to relate his horrible penance. So there's nothing about the glittering eye, which is the synecdoche. So instead of telling us that the glittering eye is to do with you know, the eye as the window on the soul and so on, um, again, we're not told anything at all. Now, simile is equally important. 
Um, in fact, I think it's actually much more important um, in the rhyme than I did when I first said I was going to talk about the rhyme and synecdoche. <laughs> um, so um, I've said something about synecdoche, but I actually think simile um, is much more important. I mean, loosely defined, it's a comparative strategy whereby, usually used by like or as or just as, um, you make some sort of suggestion of likeness or unlikeness. Now, um, Catherine Addison, in an interesting study of simile, um, says this. I, I mean, I should mention that among rhetoricians that, and, and, and literary critics, there is a kind of battle of those who think that metaphor is the great figurative device um, and those who think simile is the great figurative device. And I'm on the side of simile when it comes to the rhyme. So she says... The world of simile is a familiar one to the non-analytic or impressionistic eye. It's a world in which things are not simply the same or opposite, but similar or dissimilar in infinitely subtle ways. In it, things may be like, or they may merely seem like one another, depending on whether perception and knowledge are in harmony or at odds. In the same way that like and seems like shade into each other, so as modulates into as if, a copula, um, a, a coupling, which extends perception and knowledge into the realms of the hypothetical, the imaginative, and the fantastic. And this understanding of simile surely explains the power of the trope as exploited by Coleridge in the rhyme. So take this simile... A wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust, as dry as dust. What do we make of the simile? There's the mariner surrounded by the dead crew, and the curse of the dead men's eyes is upon him. Now, in the context, there are a number of allusions which come to mind, which affect how we make sense of this simile. Something's being, the heart is being likened to as dry as dust, and again, because simile is on this sort of spectrum, it's something's a bit like this or something is like this, we have to work out, as with synecdoche, quite what sense we're going to make of it. And one of the things that may actually influence how we make sense of this particular simile um, is the familiar ashes to ashes and dust to dust, which is used in the English burial service. Um, the text is from Genesis 3.19, and I quote, In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So there's irony here too. Um, the idea of dryness in the middle of the ocean and a dry heart, a bloodless heart, is of course lifeless. And the simile also ties in with a range of other images of desiccation um, elsewhere in the poem. So in Coleridge's poem, simile and synecdoche don't clarify any more than the glosses that he provided down the left-hand side of the poem clarify. They add to and enrich a powerfully allusive poem. The poetic language of the rhyme, its reliance on rhetorical figures such as simile and synecdoche, contribute to the poem's powerfully elusive qualities. And as Catherine Addison, that I quoted earlier, 
writes of the trope of simile itself, and she says, it resists the reduction of its great wash of shades and tones to this distinct atoms of sameness and difference. There's this wonderful sense of imprecision about simile in the hands of someone like Coleridge. I mean, she's just writing about simile as a trope, um, but I think particularly in the hands of Coleridge. And the gloss, his little prose notes, also fails to reduce the poem. It further complicates our interpretive challenge and further elicits that attentiveness that Coleridge believed to be such an important part of engaging with poetry. Now, just to end, I'd like to suggest another complicating factor when it comes to the poem's interpretation. And that is that the vividness of the poem has inspired um, a large number of artists to create illustrations. And Gustave Doré's illustrations of 1878 are powerfully imaginative and probably the best known. Um, now, if you, if you produce a, an illustration for a poem, it is, in effect, another interpretation um, because where the poem may be elusive and may be mysterious, as an artist, you're representing things. Um, and so I just want to show you a few of Doré's um, extraordinary um, illustrations. That's some of my favourite ones. Um, I mean, this is obviously for the line, the ice was all around. And he has imagined the ice and the ship um, to be very much in the same kind of and the same materiality, as it were. Um, I shot the albatross. And lastly, the water, water everywhere. Um, and there are the men uh, in agony on the deck of the ship. Now, Doré's illustrations were hugely popular in Victorian Britain, um, but I think that sometimes their literalness um, can be slightly disappointing, that the richness, the elusiveness, the vagueness, the mystery of much of the poem is made a little bit too literal in the Doré. Um, and in 1942, Mervyn Peake um, also began a sequence. He was in hospital, having been invalided out of the army, and he described attempts to cure what he described as his neurosis to his publisher at Chateau and Windus, Harold Raymond. And Raymond had the bright idea of suggesting that he illustrate the poem. Um, he must have thought it would be somehow therapeutic for him. And Peake produced extraordinary, startling, um, heavily hatched drawings. Um, one showed the leprous lady, so the leprous lady... Um, and Chateau and Windus, or, or maybe Raymond himself, decided it was just too alarming, and it was actually dropped um, from the edition. Um, but it has been included in the vintage um, edition, and here she is. <laughs> um, and here's the climax of the poem, as envisaged or interpreted um, by Peake. Um, this is, I shot the albatross. And I think Peake's more abstract and mysterious drawings capture more faithfully the wonderful fluidity um, of Coleridge's imagery, um, underpinned above all um, by his use of figurative language. And they're in harmony with 
Coleridge's brilliant definition of imagination itself. Um, He said of imagination, the primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception, and as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite, I am. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.